In a world of uncertainty, one thing is sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by Abvia, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, on your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take your climb with our heart-pumping playlist on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Memorial Stadium. Since 1962. Since 1962. A sellout crowd. A sellout crowd. All sold out. Hey, we sold out, but we still saved you a seat. The sellout with Mitch Sherman and Max Olson. Hey there and welcome to The Sellouts. I'm Mitch Sherman, joined as always by Max Olson. We are taping on Wednesday, June 3rd. Max is in Lincoln. I'm in Omaha. It has been a difficult week, to say the least, in our cities, in our state, in our country. On top of the coronavirus pandemic, we're dealing with the reality of racial injustice, protests, and violence. And we want to recognize this here at the start and direct you to a piece that I wrote that was published today on The Athletic after on Monday, I went downtown in Omaha, took stock of the area around the side of the College World Series, which of course has been canceled this year. It was a, it was a somber scene and, and I think reflective of the mood in our city. So I direct you there for a sense of how, how, how I'm feeling, how I think some, a lot of us are feeling this week. Yeah. And I, I would also encourage our listeners to read a story uh, on the athletic that I found really powerful. Uh, many of our black colleagues at the athletic worked together on a story to share their experiences with racism, whether it be with the police or, or really in everyday life. And so I really admired their bravery um, and being willing to share those those very personal and very painful stories in an effort to um, help all of us try to better understand their perspectives and experiences. I think that's incredibly valuable uh, right now. So it's entitled, I Remember You Crying, The Athletic Staffers Discuss Experiencing Racism. Uh, really encourage you to everyone to check that out. Absolutely. So on the show today, we're going to discuss the return to campus of student-athletes at Nebraska, which has begun in force this week. The state of the Nebraska program, part of our ongoing written series that looks at every major college football team at this moment in the offseason. And, and we'll be joined by Scott Docterman, our Iowa writer for The Athletic, to talk about what's happening in Iowa City. So, Max, June 1st was Monday, and as the NCAA allowed... Football players are back in Lincoln, checking in, going through testing for the coronavirus, going into 24 hours or 48 hours, I'm sorry, of quarantine. And then if they're negative, going into voluntary workouts. Bill Moose said at the end of last week that Nebraska expects to have basically its entire football team on campus and ready to go by the middle or end of this week, which essentially is where we're at right now. Nebraska is one of the leaders, nationally leaders, I mean that by one of the more aggressive programs nationally in bringing players back to campus. So mm -hmm. you've been following this story nationally. Um what do you think of what's uh, of what's happening at Nebraska and, and what you've seen around the country? Um, yeah, I thought you know I think we should definitely talk about your 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 interview with Bill Moose last week about sort of the the 
um, processes that they're putting in place. Um, I thought, you know, I thought the, the quote from John Cook in that story was a really telling one. He said, the great ones adjust, we're adjusting by the hour. And I think that's, I think that's how this whole summer is going to be. I, you know, while uh, if just from talking to athletic administrators across the country uh, in the past, you know, past few days, past few weeks, um, you know, it's hard to really kind of put, put these policies and plans down on paper and say, this is what we're doing because I think everyone's understanding of how to do this well is going to continue to evolve. And um, also your access to resources to, to do more testing and things like that, hopefully will continue to improve um, over the course of the summer. But um, you know, certainly very interesting. The, 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 the piece of this that really fascinates me is just the testing end of it. Um, you know, Nebraska is going to test their student athletes upon arrival in Lincoln, then retest them during the summer um, for voluntary workouts only if uh, they have symptoms from, from COVID-19. Right. So what sort of, what was your sense from talking to Bill Moose and talking to people at Nebraska about, um, you know, that end of it and, and also just trying to, um, you know, keep up with everybody else in best practices? Well, of course, they've never been through anything like this before. And they do have a great partner in the University of Nebraska Medical Center, which yeah. has been a leader um, in, in this fight against COVID-19 from, from the beginning. From really, the, from, from the day time, one of this. Yeah, right, right. right. From, the, from before it even spread through the United States. So that's com- comforting, I think, for Bill Moose and the Nebraska Athletic Department and really for the entire state of Nebraska that the, the football program – and, and the other programs at Nebraska have the Med Center as a partner to guide them through, um, you know, what it, there, there's going to be there's going to be struggles here. There's going to be uh, un, unexpected challenges. Nebraska already had had one football player test positive, And this was among the, the guys who stayed in Lincoln or were in Lincoln for at least the majority of the month of May. They went through their their testing in quarantine before June 1st, before the uh, the returning players got back to campus so that Nebraska could could start right away on Monday with a certain number of players who were cleared to get into the weight room and and get out there with the strength coaches in in, in the conditioning area. I you know, you're starting to see that around the country. We we we've seen some reports today at Oklahoma State of of three uh, players uh, who were asymptomatic who all tested positive. Yeah. Right. And, and we saw at Iowa State a student worker test positive who's who's been around some um, some student athletes. We don't know the sport necessarily, but this is this is going to continue to happen. It'll happen at Nebraska. It'll happen around the country. And and you know, right now it, they're they're in a real closed off environment. In June and July, there aren't other students on campus. The football players have their own rooms in the dorms, otherwise empty dorms. They're working out. In, in facilities that are cleaned constantly, that are that are monitored, the players have to go through temperature te- checks, uh, symptom checks every day. You know, August is going to be a different story. So you know, we'll see what we'll see what happens uh, when when um, you know when August comes around and you have to actually practice in Nebraska's case with 150 players on the field. Yeah, that's. I think that's a piece of it that is is um, that has to be a little bit more daunting when you're trying to to put together a plan. Um, for Nebraska, it's just that there, there aren't that many, as you know, there aren't that many teams in the country, um, other than you know maybe the service academies that have 150 players in their program um, and have multiple locker rooms and have to uh, make sure you know a, a, any one of those players could um, you know get sick or not, or not get sick, be asymptomatic, but um, but get COVID 19 and and spread it to others. So 
it's gonna, I, you know, I, I've said this a bunch when, when you know, you do radio interviews and stuff, and people ask you, you know, what do you think is gonna happen? The the reality is, we've all just got to cross our fingers for a long time here that, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that this could go badly, and we just all have to cross our fingers that it doesn't, because, um, you know, I think everyone's trying to make the best decisions they can with the information they have right now, but once you start putting these people. Um, back in, back on not just back on campus, but back in your locker room in sort of this bubble. Um, you know how how well can you manage that? Yeah, it's hard to imagine that there won't be more significant outbreaks, or or you yeah. know certainly more than what we've seen, but significant outbreaks to the point that are going to jeopardize teams' ability to practice, teams' ability to play. So you know we're going to have to be ready to uh, to deal with that. Um, administrators, coaches are going to have to be ready to really look at the season from a different perspective than they but, have but in the, any, the other, any season. The other part of that that's I think that has to be distressing if you're working in an athletic department is, you know, your concern is not so much necessarily that your student athletes who get COVID nineteen are going to you know be hospitalized and on a ventilator. It's that you have an athletic department full of people who are much more vulnerable if they contract it. You know, including coaches, your coaching staff, right? Uh, and, and all kinds of people who work around the program, you know, who who, who have to man the stadium. Um, you know, we've heard a lot of optimistic outlooks from athletic directors in the past couple of weeks since this June 1st date was announced about the prospect of having half full stadiums or entirely full stadiums in the fall. And the 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 you know, the potential pitfalls of that are just tremendous. Yeah. The the uh, the difficulty in staging that I'm not here to say today because because I don't know that it's an impossibility or that it won't happen or that I'm making a prediction. But I think we have to be realistic and, and understand that just how difficult it will be to play football in front of 70 or 80,000 people at any point in 2020. Yeah. Not to mention that, I mean, a lot of that stuff in terms of the rules about how many people can um, collect together in a crowd that's not dictated by the university of nebraska right that's a that is city yep. and, and state responsibilities to make those things uh, you know to determine what's allowed but you know and i think that's that's probably part that's important to this is like it's like you and i are trying to be critical of what they're trying to do here because um you know ultimately like i said you go off the information you have and it, i think it's you have to be careful though I, the easy takeaway on this is well you know Things are on schedule, right? They're back on campus at the right time um, to start doing workouts to, you know, keep on schedule for a September beginning. But uh, there's just so many factors and so many um, things that they're having to work through and things that could occur in these next few months that um, it's really going to be, uh, I'm, I'm sure it will continue to be really a day-by-day struggle of, of figuring out how to get through this. They're on schedule until they're not on schedule. That's yeah. kind of the way it's going to be for 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 a while. One thing I found interesting, and we'll finish this discussion with this. In my conversation with Bill Moose, he talked about freshmen mm-hmm. on campus. Yeah, um, not a problem this summer. The incoming freshmen, they're going to be in dorm rooms by themselves. Right now, many of them are going through that 48-hour quarantine period. And then once that's over, they're going to continue to be in dorm rooms by themselves. They they're, they're not going to have roommates. That's different come August when the general student population begins to get back on campus. And Nebraska plans to seek a waiver from the school, presumably. I don't think that's an NCAA or Big Ten no. decision. Yeah, right. Seek a waiver from the school um, that will allow those those football players, the majority of them if they wish, to live off campus. And, you know, I, 
there's there's pluses and minuses. You go off campus, then you're in a much larger community yeah. in the city. Um, you, you're potentially exposed to all kinds of different things that wouldn't necessarily happen on campus. So it's just another issue where I don't think the people making the decisions really have a great sense of what the best way to proceed is, even if they're allowed to do everything that they want and they're, they're allowed to move their freshman players in a, in a step away from tradition, away from the dorms that they normally live in. There's no telling that that's the right decision because they could just as easily or perhaps more easily get infected living in an apartment complex two miles away. Yeah, well, and, and that's 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 sort of the whole problem here, right? Is there's just no precedent. So you know, there, unfortunately, because of that, um, there's gonna, there's going to be trial and error. That's just the bottom line. There's there's going to be schools that do a phenomenal job in their handling of this, and there are going to be schools that take take a different approach and do a horrible job. And people will learn from their mistakes, right? Because it's you know, at least at the FBS level, that's 130 different football programs that are all trying their best to take the best approach with this. And some of them will find good solutions and some of them will, will find what they think are good solutions that backfire. That's just the unfortunate piece of this. And you, and you hope as few people are, are impacted as possible, you know? Right. Um, want to shift gears a bit and get to the state of the program discussion. So go check it out. Nebraska state of the program piece posted on Memorial day on our site on the athletic. Um, it covers a lot of ground as all of the stories in this series do. We're, we're taking a look at all of the power five programs between now and sometime in July, a number of the group of five programs. Uh, I want to start with a position group on this team. That's getting a lot of attention this off season. One of the things that we do in these state of the program pieces is we examine the roster position by position. Max, let's talk about the Nebraska wide receivers. And, and, and I want to get right to the elephant in the room. J.D. Spielman, most accomplished guy on the roster at any position as far as the statistics that he's put up in his first three years as a as a Husker. He is not back with the team as far as we know this week as voluntary workouts have begun. I've asked Nebraska for an update. I've not received one. Uh, Scott Frost did do an interview last week with the Lincoln Journal Star and Husker Online, and he offered nothing new on, on J.D. Spielman. So I, you know, I'm not ready to say that the ship has sailed on this one, but every day that goes forward without news that J.D. Spielman is in fact coming back to the Nebraska football team, I think has to be one day closer to Nebraska moving on without him. What, um, what's your take on yeah, that? Yeah, well, you know, and if, if they'd gone through 15 spring practices in the spring game of working out that wide receiver group and, and of, of giving guys opportunities to you know, step up and get reps with the ones and all that, then I think that probably would give you like a little bit more confidence of, look, no, no question. JD Spielman would be a huge loss, but at least you've have other guys that are, are working towards, you know, being ready to, to handle that, those, those duties. And obviously, you know, keeping Wandale Robinson's a huge part of that too, but, um, but they didn't have that. Right. So that's why we're all kind of still sitting here and the JD Spielman issue lingers because, um, Last three left off. I mean, they, they got on the field a little bit, but you didn't, you know, not really serious scrimmage reps and, and stuff like that. So um, it's, you know, <laughs> your guess is as good as mine on, on how that one shakes out. But certainly now would be the time. I know it's voluntary, um, you know, getting getting the, the athletes back to campus. Um, but you would think if, if he, you know, wanted to get back into the, the flow of things, now would be the time. Absolutely. Um even if spring had progressed as scheduled, 
Nebraska still would have had a lot of questions at the end of it about that receiver position yeah. because Omar Manning, Xavier Betts, those guys were still working on their eligibility in April. And now we know that both are expected on campus. Manning has graduated from junior college at Kilgore in, in Texas. Betts, the Bellevue West senior, is, is, a, is a high school graduate and is eligible now. Nebraska has Alante Brown as a new receiver who was there for the two practices in spring. It has Marcus Fleming out of South Florida. It has William Nixon out of Waco, Texas. This is, with or without J.D. Spielman, probably the most impactful group of newcomers on the roster, these receivers. So you add those guys to Wandale Robinson, Cade Warner, um, the, the players, Demari and Houston, Jamie Nance, who redshirted a year ago. There's a lot of room there for Nebraska to make uh, make significant fr- progress at the receiver spot under Matt Lubick as a first-year assistant coach. Yeah, you know, it's funny. A lot of times when we watch when we watch games, we, we think of the perspective – of you know the quarterback helping the receivers and and I think last season as you watched that season play out didn't you get a different appreciation for how much the wide receivers help out the quarterback you know and just having having numbers at that group and having dependable guys that you know all right this play goes to this guy and he can give us an explosive play um, it just wasn't very reliable last season you know it, it, right and and that lack of reliability. I think was more noticeable than what you would find in a year where the receivers were out there making plays. You can take you can take advantage you can take uh, take that for granted if uh, you know you have a six two six three guy who is able to go up and get a ball in the red zone or run a fade uh, in the end zone or, oh, I mean, or you know you just know, make a catch the, over the middle. Yeah, I mean watch the Frost UCF offense. It's it's getting guys in one on one situations and trusting them to go win fifty fifty deals, and they just they didn't have a whole lot of that going on last year. There's a lot of great things that Spielman and Wandale Robinson can do in this Nebraska offense, but they're so much more effective if there's bigger targets and more versatile receivers, traditional uh, taller receivers out there who allow them to fit into the roles that they're more suited physically to do. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think the, um, you know, I mean, we, we've said it before, but I mean the the hype on Omar Manning I think is is going to be deserved and and the fact that he got um, he took care of his business and 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 got uh, graduated from Kilgore I think is is it's big for him and I, I know he tweeted I think he said he's the first member of his family to to graduate right to have a degree so right it's it's significant and um, you know I think you, when you when when you can get those guys to Lincoln. Um, and I'm sure it'd be fascinating to see sort of what kind of shape everyone's in after these past mm-hmm. few months, but, um, it's, it's a huge difference. And, and, and I think, especially with the way things have become a little bit more clear that Adrian Martinez is, you know, very clearly going to be the guy, um, it has to give him a lot of confidence. Right. Much like Diedrich Mills a year ago at this time out of junior college. And, and, you know, he took some time to settle into the offense, but we saw it against Wisconsin. We saw it at the end of the year when Maurice Washington was, was no longer with the team. Omar Manning uh, needs to have that same kind of an impact. I think Nebraska expects him to have even a bigger impact in in, in the way that uh, you know he's likely to start from day one, when, whenever it is that Nebraska gets on the field. So before we get to Scott Docterman and talk about Iowa, last Friday, Max Henry Gray announced his decision to leave Nebraska. He's a true freshman, safety, top three hundred prospect in the twenty twenty class, an early enrollee in Lincoln in January. Gray said he's leaving because of a family situation. Notably, he is the 13th scholarship player to be removed from this roster since the end of last season. I know you keep close tabs on the transfer portal. So what do you make of this trend at Nebraska when you compare it to what's happening at other programs? 
Yeah, I mean, I th- well, look, I think anyone who's followed this knows when you break down that 13, there's been a number of those players, um, you know, who were dismissed from the program and, and had to move on. Um, and then there's been a number of players um, who, you know, were reserves that just want to get a chance to play somewhere, even if that's at a lower level of football. And that and that's even, you know, there's even been some walk-ons that have left Nebraska for that reason. And, and you can't blame them from that standpoint. But the Henry Gray one is a little bit of a different blow. And it got me thinking about something that, you know, I've talked to a bunch of recruiting coordinators uh, at the Power 5 level last week about what they're expecting from the rest of this recruiting cycle, which is, has been so unusual with, you know, a uh, recruiting dead period that's gone on from, um, March all the way through the summer. And, and what, you know, one of them out on the, out on the West coast told me, um, that, you know, their concern is, um, look, all these recruiting coordinators are expecting a lot of decommitments, but one of their concerns is maybe because of this pandemic, there's going to be a lot of players that just feel they need to, and, and families that feel they need to have their players close to home, you know? And so yeah. if, if Henry Gray's moved to, to, to go home, uh, is in any, any way part of that? I think that kind of makes sense. I think we're going to see more of that, not just in in decommitments, but also in transfers um, this year. As as people, you know, have their have their players come home for a few months and realize, um, you know, that that look like Nebraska's done a great job recruiting Florida and, and Miami specifically, and the twenty twenty class was a big deal. But at the end of the day, you're asking those kids to move fourteen hundred miles away, and that's a hard thing to do right now. Yeah, and that happens both ways. Um, you know, Nebraska loses Henry Gray. Um, as he goes back home, and at the same time, there's news that Arizona State tight end Jared Buback uh, is going to play his final season as a walk-on at Nebraska. He was recruited by Nebraska out of Lincoln Christian in 2016 right. in the class of 16, and here he comes home to add some more depth and experience to what is to already uh, a veteran group on the Nebraska roster at the tight end spot. So that will be a storyline that we continue to watch as this offseason unfolds. And, and even after the 2020 season, I would imagine it will be something that, uh, that stays yeah, in the news. No doubt. Okay, let's welcome in Scott Doctorman, our Iowa writer, a veteran of all the press boxes in the Big Ten. Scott, thank you for jumping in here. Max and I have, have already been through the situation at Nebraska as football players and other student athletes return to campus this week for voluntary workouts. Give us a sense of, of what's happening right now and in, in days to come at, at Iowa. Yeah, right now they are in, uh, they're in their third day of the coaches returning to the buildings. And it's a select few number of coaches. It's pretty much uh, the most essential personnel. Uh, they are allowed to come in and out. And then on Monday, the players will be allowed to return for voluntary workouts. They stress that pretty strongly, uh, but I can't imagine very many people are not going to participate in voluntary workouts. Uh, but it'll be smaller groups. Uh, it'll probably be longer uh, days for the strength and conditioning staff. Uh, but it's it's all you know. Everything seems to be going forward starting tomorrow and or starting next Monday, and then the following Monday men's and women's basketball players are allowed to return. So they're kind of doing this in piecemeal. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, there, there seems to be a goal in sight for the end of the, uh, the summer to, to everything to be back pretty close to being normal. Yeah, Scott, it seems like Gary Barta um, and their staff are, are, are trying to follow a lot of the recommendations that everybody else is. But I know when he was putting their plan out there, one thing that got a lot of attention is – um, asking Iowa players to to sign a pledge of expectations. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's it's a little bit odd. I think I, I think we can all agree to that. But I think it's 
what it is more than anything is just be smart. Don't do anything stupid. Don't go out. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, in the day and age that we're living in and what's going on um, on campuses and cities all over the country, I don't know how much sticking power that's going to have. So, uh, yeah. you know, they want them to be smart. They don't want them to congregate in large groups at the bars without wearing their masks and getting in trouble and then getting, you know, COVID themselves and then spreading it to their teammates. That all makes sense. But I'm not, so, I'm not sure, especially in light of what we've seen over the last week, if that's the right course and if they, uh, they rebel against this, I could see this be coming back to them in a negative light. Do you, do you, are you going to get asked to sign a pledge of expectations when you enter the Iowa football facility for the Tuesday press conferences or, uh, or Kinnick Stadium on, on Saturdays in the fall? Yeah, exactly. It's like, don't take too many uh, cold lunches this year. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think all three days of the buffet line are over, which is probably a good thing anyway. But uh, yeah, I, I would say that uh, we'll, we'll probably all have pledges that we won't sue the school if we get COVID. We're understanding of the situation, but no, I don't think we'll have to do anything on Tuesdays. Yeah, there's an unintended consequence. The uh, that, that that may not be the worst thing in the world when when they stop serving those meals at the uh, at the press conferences in places like Lincoln and Iowa City. Um, so you're talking about June 8th for football players, June 15th for, for the basketball players. It's just, a about a week in terms of football behind what we, we've seen at Nebraska and on par with schools like Ohio state. And basically the entire sec is, is coming back, um, in, in, on June 8th too. Yeah. So, so, so I was right there, you know, in, in your mailbag, um, your recent mailbag that you did on the athletic uh, where you answer questions from from Iowa fans, you tried to dig into some of the financial impact that Iowa is facing uh, the rest of the year. Obviously, this is this is significant, um, starting with the loss of NCAA basketball tournament revenue in March and April. But what what were your main takeaways from from reporting on that? Yeah, I think what we're looking at is that once July first gets here, everything is going to be cut. And I and I've from what I've been told from most people, it's going to be almost fifteen percent across the board. For salaries and probably budgets, um, and uh, you know, for somebody like Kirk Ferentz, it's not a big deal. But somebody like a, you know, staff photographer, it kind of is. And it, you know, and I'd also think when you start to look at discretionary spending and and tightening, that's where it's going to affect some of these teams, like Iowa and and other every other football team isn't going to adjust how it schedules its non-conference football based on on its cuts, but it will adjust on how it travels. Because uh, Iowa traditionally buses to Iowa State, Wisconsin, and Northwestern. It's three closest teams. And, and Northwestern is because of the traffic, try to fly to O'Hare or Midway and then bus there. It's like, oh, let's just forget it. Let's just bus. Uh, Illinois is another one. It's about four hours that they've flown. They've, they've bust. A lot of these are going to be strictly bus trips because there's a sixty to $70,000 difference between busing and flying charter to, to a lot of these spots. And, and uh, so I could see Iowa, for instance, deciding to bust to Minnesota and Nebraska sure. and fly back. You know, same thing maybe with Purdue. Um, some of the, the five to six hour trips doing it that way. The other sports are where there's going to be a lot of impact. And I went through a lot of the discretionary travel uh, that some of these Olympic sports do. And, and is there really a reason that women's gymnastics team should go to New Hampshire or Women's golf go to Mexico twice, Arizona twice, Seattle, Corvallis. You know, they they really do. They've been spending money because they could spend money. Yeah, 
now is the time to say no, you know, as an, as an apartment for all these. I mean, the baseball team had a, had a three-game set at, at a Hawaii, uh, you know, two years ago. Wow. I, I Pro- probably not going to happen in 2020, 2021. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, uh, you know, a three-game set against Creighton or Mizzou might be more on the cards in the future. So, right. and that's not a bad thing, but I think that's probably what we're looking at right now with Iowa is, is uh, some salary cuts and, uh, you know, the travel that can be cut down. I think that's where they're going to go. Yeah, and, and, you know, obviously the other the other side of that balance sheet that's obviously so important Um I'm curious kind of where your feelings are on the expectations in terms of um, the capacity at Kinnick and just kind of where things are heading there. Obviously, it's hard for any AD to commit to a plan or a percentage um, at the beginning of June here. But, um, you know, what, what's what been sort of Gary Barta's take on that? And, and you know, what what's your sense of, um, you know, what's realistic versus what, what people are wishing for? It's interesting because the two in-state athletic directors who both are among the eight or so most uh, tenured ADs in the country, uh, they, are, uh, they are taking different views. Jamie Pollard at Iowa State is believing it's going to be half full for the, the kickoff at, in Ames on, G, on September 5th. Gary Bart is going the other way, saying we're selling all of our tickets. We're doing as whatever. We, we do not believe it's going to be impacted. Now, he also is smart enough to understand that it, that there are going to be uh, potentially some reductions. And then they've got a, a tiered process for that. So at, at last glance, I mean, they, they traditionally sell between 47 and 50,000 season tickets. The other 20,000 or so are, are single games or different packs. Uh, they're, they're, the buying is down, clearly. I mean, it's less than 40 right now. Uh, they've got, you know what their expectation is. Hey, if, if they need to cut to half seats or half capacity, then you know for the most part, anybody who's bought a season ticket or uh, students, and then also their priority points list. You know, people who give more, uh, they're going to be the priority on how they get in. How do you how do you just personally feel about that when you try to envision uh, going to cover a football game? in September at that stadium. I mean, what, what, what's your comfort level with, uh, you know, maybe where that stuff needs to land? Uh, you know, I, I, I've kind of gone through the swirl of emotions because, you know, COVID has hit my family personally, but they both have now recovered. And, uh, you know, they've told me horror stories of dealing with people. So I, I guess I could see the angst and anxiety of it, but I also think at some point, we're going to have to just jump in that water and it's going to, you know, work. I mean, I kind of think that it's probably going to be in the two thirds range. Um, I'm not really that concerned as long as I have a mask. Um, the press box does concern me, but I think right now what we're going to see is a major reduction of uh, the people inside the press box. Um, that's probably good for, <laughs> it's good for us. It's good for a lot of people, actually. Uh, a lot of people who shouldn't be there, uh, won't be there. And that's, that's a good thing. Same thing with the sidelines. My big question, you know, and this goes to what we do, all three of us do is how are we going to report? Um, you know, we're going to probably do deal a lot of with the zoom, mm-hmm. whether it's weekly press conferences, it's yeah. player, it's going to be from the podium post game. It's not going to be a big scrum and, you know, with a bunch of players, uh, that, that bothers me as a professional and I'm sure it bothers you to think I can't get this one-on-one time with this athlete to try to, you know, write something, you know, informative and good. You're just going to have to do what you can. And, and I think for 
one year we can kind of plug our nose and go, okay, but still it's, it's going to be tough to go through. Yeah. We hope these don't become habits that uh, athletic departments decide to employ long-term, even when the, uh, when the pandemic is over, <laughs> Max, you kind of read my you kind of read my mind there on the question. I wanted to ask Scott what his personal feelings were too after hearing what Gary Barta and, and Jamie Pollard thought. It's it's almost like we prepare for these podcasts or something to uh, um, to get uh, to get these questions out. You know, I, w- I want to finish with you, Scott, on this. Um, you know, we're, we're moving forward. I think everyone is moving forward as if the 2020 season is going to be played, and you know, we're not naive to the fact that. Uh, it's going to be impacted in, in some way, either large or small, by the the the, the state of, of the pandemic. Let's just say that Iowa gets to play the season that, that it wants to play. And we know Iowa has a new quarterback. Nate Stanley's gone. Um, Spencer Pitras is coming in. What What is your, is your vibe, um, you know, starting with that quarterback spot, just about what reasonable expectations are for the Hawkeyes in 2020? I think they they feel pretty confident with their team. I mean, this is a, a two or three years ago they had the worst wide receiver core I've ever seen, and potentially in the history of Power Five sports. I, and I'm not being hyperbolic, but when they went into that spring of the big competition with Nate Stanley and Tyler Weegers, they had two scholarship receivers, and neither one caught a pass, and neither one still have not caught a pass. It's, it was that bad, <laughs> dire. And they've gotten to the point where last year they they tied a program record for the most receptions by a wide receiver group. So, and they all four are coming back. Amir Smith-Marset had three touchdowns against USC in the second quarter. Uh, they have some real talent there that I think will help Spencer Petras, who has an incredible arm. Um, he's probably going to try to use it a little bit too often. <laughs> and he's probably going to throw some more interceptions than normal. But he does have an arm that's that's even beyond what Nate Stanley has, which I think plays well. I think this is an offense that's probably in better shape than it's been in close to a decade. The defense is a concern for me for Iowa. You just don't replace A.J. Epineza. Now they did get a grad transfer from Northern Illinois, a defensive tackle, Jack Heflin, uh, who fits perfectly for their two-gap scheme. He's going to just kind of command the point, and and I think their defense will be good. Now, can they get to the passer? That's, you know, really that's my biggest question personnel-wise. The second one has to deal with schedule. Uh, their crossovers are Michigan State, Ohio State, and Penn State. Um, that's not Maryland, Rutgers, and Indiana. <laughs> so, um, and they play them consecutively too. Now, I, I do. I would say Iowa, I think, is a better team than Michigan State. The other two, they probably aren't, and and they're both on the road. So, uh, they could be the best team in the West, or very close to it, like they were last year. Uh, but that schedule could, you know, come back to kill them if it's, uh, you know, if they have three losses like they did last year. It could be schedule-based rather than, you know, what they have talent-wise. So I do think this is a good team. I think they're going to be, you know, second or third at the worst in the Big Ten West. I think they're going to win at minimum eight games. But how Petrus performs, how the defense holds up, you know, against the run and and if they can get after the passer will tell me if whether or not they can reach that next level. And and then also you wouldn't sleep on the Minnesota-Iowa State back-to-back journeys and in – or they play Iowa State at home, but Minnesota and Iowa State within a six-day period, uh, those were big rivalry games. Um, yeah. Both teams were good, and, and Iowa's won five straight against both, but that doesn't mean that they're going to win six straight. Yeah, you know, Scott, lastly, we, we should ask you, you, you know, you mentioned this, but you, having two family members um, experience COVID-19, you know, how are they doing, and, and, and how did, uh, you know, how has kind of your experience and your family's experience these past few months kind of given you perspective on all of this? 
Yeah, it's, uh, thanks for asking. Uh, both of them were diagnosed actually the same day. One lives in Oklahoma. She's a nurse in the Tulsa area. Another one is a, my mother's a nurse in the St. Louis area. And um, both were quarantined for a significant amount of time. And uh, my sister recovered after about six weeks. My mother took longer. Actually, she thought she was recovered. Um, and then had to go back to the hospital, and she was hospitalized for a little while. And, and uh, so it was, it was an obvious concern. You know, at first, kind of like all of us in that March-April window, we just didn't know what was going to happen. And, right. You know, is this you know, a death sentence, or is this something you can recover from? I think what I've seen over that, you know, that period of time is I think they're, you know, I'm concerned. I think this is important. I think everybody should take it seriously. But I also think that there's a recovery for people who are healthy. So I guess I'm, I'm probably more to the point now where, okay, we've shut down long enough. It's probably time to start moving forward a little bit as a society, but do it in a safe and careful way. If that means everybody wear a mask, just wear a mask. It's not that big of a deal just because you're going into a store. So mm-hmm. um, that's kind of where I am right now. Um, that's why I think it's going to be you know, important for football to come back and other sports. Um, and, and so there's going to be another wave. Um, I just think we need to be smart in how we do it and not, you know, thousands of people load into one pool at the Lake of the Ozarks over the Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, hey, Scott, we know, you've, we know you've got to go talk to Kirk Ferentz today. So thanks so much for, for taking some time and visiting with us. And stay safe. Hope your family's safe. And, and uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, same for you guys. And thanks for having me on. Thanks, buddy. Okay, our thanks to Scott Doctorman for joining the show and giving us some insight into Iowa. Please subscribe to our podcast, The Sellouts, on Apple or Spotify. Leave us a review, a good rating. Find our stories on The Athletic. If you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off for one year by going to theathletic.com forward slash the sellouts. We continue to look forward to the return of sports. And of course, our thoughts are with everyone who is suffering right now in Nebraska and around the country. Thanks for listening.